0: Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Matthew Pohl. He is the founder and principal of the beautifully named Rewild Group. Matthew, welcome. Thank you very
1: much for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. Tell me, why the Rewild Group? The name,
1: the origins of the name come from a scientific concept called rewilding. And it's the idea where in in natural ecosystems that An element is missing that is causing that ecosystem to be less than optimal. And so the process, the scientific process, is to reintroduce or to introduce that missing element. Uh, The the most famous story comes from Yellowstone National Park in the United States, which is uh, actually the world's longest or oldest national park. It's a huge space, bigger than two of the smallest states in the United States. And um, anyway, the ecosystem within Yellowstone National Park was failing because of too many elk overgrazing the park. And the the short part of the story is that the reintroduction of gray wolves, which had been missing from the park for over 70 years, really helped restore the natural balance within the park not only did the the wolves reduce the number of elk, but it really set off this chain reaction that caused the rewilding of the park and uh, the regaining of the health of the ecosystem down to the place that not only did it impact wildlife and vegetation, but it actually changed how streams go through the park. And so, that's where the rewilding concept comes from. We've taken that scientific concept and applied it to businesses, which we consider to be human ecosystems. They're not, they're not fixed machines with cogs in a wheel uh, because of the dynamic nature of human beings. And so when a business's ecosystem is unhealthy, organizational rewilding helps come and restore that natural balance by infusing key elements into those organizations so that's the concept of rewilding and so we are the rewild group
0: and so could you give us 60 seconds on your history uh, your career history sure
1: my academic background is in statistics applied statistics and information systems so I'm I'm kind of a data geek at at heart but um I spent my early career in large organizations like uh, the Federal Reserve Bank, which is the US Central Bank and Arthur Anderson, which at that time was the world's largest uh, professional services company. But then in my mid thirties, I started my own business. I ran that for 15 years and had a nice exit from that, selling it to one of my largest competitors several years ago. And since that time, I've been focused on taking about 30 years of research of small and mid sized businesses across dozens of industries that really form the foundation of the intellectual property for the Rewild Group and, and taking that and making this, uh, this business growth system called organizational rewilding.
0: Okay. So, c- can you give us the kind of an example of <clears> the <throat> kind of organization that would benefit from organizational rewilding?
1: Our research really focuses on organizations that have 1 to 350 employees but the methodology actually stretches far beyond that and even in larger companies a lot of times a business could be comprised of several different business units or operating divisions and each of them really kind of form their own ecosystem and so the methodology would apply to those individual business units so It's uh, industry agnostic, so it goes across really all industries, which is one of the powerful parts of it, one to 350 employees. And it's really applicable, everything from what we consider stage one, which is a startup stage of one to 10 employees, all the way up to uh, stage seven. So it has quite a bit of a a reach within that space.
0: Okay. So... In terms of the kind of issues that they would be struggling with that would make them ripe as a a potential rewilded business, what what are the characteristics, qualities, blind spots that they've fallen into?
1: Yeah, I would say there's kind of two major characteristics, Um, businesses that are stuck So these are businesses, maybe they're still at startup, you know, just trying to get the engines going and really struggling to connect with the marketplace, uh, not really sure how to grow. Or it's a business that has gotten stuck after a period of growth, right? It might be 10, 15, 20 years old and it's kind of hit this plateau and the CEO is not sure how to get progress going again. They've just been idle, kind of doing the same thing for a while. We also see businesses that are experiencing rapid growth uh, that really need this as well, because kind of the one of the foundational truths we've uncovered is the idea that there are seven stages that businesses go through based on the number of employees they have. And what's important to understand is that each stage has different rules. And so when a company is rapidly growing, it's going through these different stages and what was working eventually will stop working. And so it's critical for those rapidly growing businesses to understand where they are and what's coming so they can be proactive. Otherwise, they're just caught in this reactive world, which is very hard to sustain. Eventually, when you're only reacting, you're going to get knocked off uh, off your base. You're going to get to a place where you're you're kind of unable to sustain that growth. And that's really what we're trying to do is help people understand, business leaders understand how businesses grow so that they can make conscious decisions to grow their business and be able to sustain that growth.
0: This is just so important. I think what what I see is there's a a lovely maxim, which is your business is delivering exactly the results that you've designed it to deliver. And if you haven't designed it, then that's uh, <laughs> kind of the outcome. <laughs> I think one of the really important challenges for business leaders is to recognize the trajectory that they're on and the trajectory they want to be on and plan for that. Otherwise, they spend their time reactively. And I've seen this in so many sales organizations that have hit a spurt of growth and then they have to go out and recruit more people instead of drive more production from the people they already have because they haven't planned for that. And that's expensive and slow. And
1: that concept there, it's not just the two functions you talked about, really are business development, having success, drive more revenue, and then operations, having the people to deliver on that. But there's really six different areas within a business that need to grow proportionally. Talk to me and about
0: that
1: Yeah, so the idea is that There are six areas of growth, or really kind of functional areas of a business. And they include business development, business model and plan, finance, leadership, operations, and workplace community. These six areas need to be growing proportionately through these stages of growth. And what will often happen for a business leader is they have maybe one or two of these six areas that have a natural they, they have a natural bend towards, they have natural skill set, they have experience in so they they tend to focus in those areas. and it's kind of like a race uh, horse race where a few of the horses get ahead of the pack. in a horse race, that's what they're supposed to do. but in a business, what that's causing is that there are some laggards within the organization and eventually, those will weigh on the business and if they're not keeping up with this proportional growth across these six areas there's cracks in the foundation there's heavier weights there's headwinds whatever analogy you want to say that finally stalls the company and that's where we come in like that's where a business gets stuck because it's like wow we were we were growing really rapidly yeah You got your sales down, but you didn't get your operations. You don't have your workplace community. You don't have finance and your business model are out of sync. All these other areas that seem to be unimportant or that the business leader might not really personally have visibility to, they don't know that these areas are even need to be developed. Eventually, these weigh on the organization and cause it to become stuck.
0: I had a sort of image of a javelin thrower um, with one arm much bigger than the other. <laughs> um, uh, yeah okay so that then creates an imbalance and it's a bit like being sucked into a black hole because you start to stretch and the the bits of the business that aren't keeping up start to become very fragile or brittle, um, brittle Yes. and um, then what you end up with is uh, a disconnect and I, I'm sensing that the knock-on effect of that is that you start to create structural tension within the business and then that can create a blame game or excuses and that will feed into the customer's experience as well because if sales and operations are doing okay but customer service isn't or finance isn't, then you'll start having problems with mismanagement in terms of the finances that you know invoices don't get sent out Uh, that kind of thing. And then you create a cash flow crunch. So is that the kind of thing that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, exactly. It can be things like what you just, the example you went through is, is one that we see in real life situations where the CEO is kind of the rainmaker kind of personality, definitely knows how to bring in business, but doesn't understand or doesn't spend as much time in operations or maybe finance. And so that person is out there just selling more and more and more and the organization just can't keep up with it. So the organization grows itself right into failure. And that could be that they're not invoicing and collecting on time, so cash flow becomes a problem. They can't pay their people, they can't pay their vendors. You know, those those are just things that do happen. They happen on a routine basis. But it could also be that maybe operations are doing okay, you know, kind of mechanically, but maybe your workplace community isn't working. So you, you're growing, you get up to maybe stage three, you're at 30 employees, but you're starting to get ready to go into stage four, 40 people, and you've never spent time on your culture. You don't have clear core values or brand values. And the net result is that no one's really unified in this. You know, the top person is still selling a bunch and you kind of have some of the blocking and tackling down but the team isn't working together because there's no unifying factor. So it's just like um, in sports, right? You can have a lot of good players, but if they're not a good team that's cohesive can beat a more talented team because they're unified. And so these are where some of the, those cracks show up as well as what might be considered maybe softer areas, but they're still foundational areas of the business
0: it It's so important that and uh, especially if you're going through rapid growth, um because that those values and that uh, community are critical to all of you working towards the same outcome. And I interviewed a very interesting chap, Aaron Sh- uh, Schmickler, and he was saying that values are only values if you have to sacrifice something to keep them. And too often, I think what I've seen leaders do is they're going after their big prize, but they don't necessarily make sure that everybody else is on board. And so you end up with leaders who don't get the best out of their people, whereas there are others who realize that they have to get out the way and they have to step back and let their people come up with the ideas and to bring the best out in them. So, it, as they're going through sort of stages three and four, I suspect that's where that would really come into play
1: yeah well the the hardest transition for the CEO and our based on our research, and by the way, our methodology isn't based on my experience. I've had success in business, but that's not what drives this methodology. I was actually a user of the methodology and demonstrated that I could be successful with it so We researched over 1,300 small, mid-sized businesses and dozens of industries over several decades. So in good economic times and bad economic times. But the point is is that in the transition between stage two, the ramp-up stage, and stage three, which is the delegation stage, there's a critical shift in the the organization. And we call that moving from owner-centric, stage one and stage two, to enterprise centric, stage three and up. And the stage three is that that transition where the business is getting too big for the owner to really have a span of control across the entire organization. And so they have to start delegating. And as they start delegating, they have to start releasing responsibility and authority and to get clarity and keep consistent. That's where these core values and brand values, we really create two Two groups of values in our methodology, it becomes really important because that becomes the unifying effect. It allows people from disparate backgrounds to be working together on a common goal. Otherwise, it's just the leader that is kind of cheering or, you know, cracking the whip, whatever is the motivator to try to keep this larger and larger group moving forward together. And eventually, it's just too large. You can't sustain that.
0: So there is another observation, which small businesses stay small because the owner keeps them that way? And I'm guessing it's because they can't let go of that.
1: I would say there's a couple of things. One is, is a personality, just a style. But I would say most of the times it's more of a lack, it's, it's kind of an ignorance to know that that's really a healthy thing. We see a lot of businesses stall at stage two, which is the second stage that is owner centric. Because the owner is getting really busy at that time. There's a lot more people and they're scared to go bigger because they say, I'm already busy enough. How could I add another 10 people to my organization? I will burn out. But what they don't understand, if they do it right, that stage three is delegation, that they start to delegate to managers that they're mentoring. And then the stage four is called the professional stage where you're putting in a professional management team. And it actually starts to get easier at that time. And so there's this fear in stage two, I can't handle anymore, it can't get more complex, but really help is on the way if you're willing to grow with it. And I find most business leaders, if they had a, a roadmap, if they if, if they could see a plan and know what they're they should be doing, kind of the best practices, they're willing to give it a try. For most of them, though, they just don't have any sense of what's coming, what they should be doing. And that's what's really powerful with our methodology is we really lay out this roadmap. So if you follow it for every stage, you're really optimizing your organization in that current stage for growth, for continued growth. And so that's what I found personally is I was working hard. At a stage one business. And we kept on going up to stage two, coming back to stage one, stage two, coming back to stage one. I didn't know that the rules were changing. This methodology gave me the rules. And in three years, we went from stage one to stage, almost going to stage four, our sales tripled, something I could never achieve on my own. But now I had a team that was helping me do that. I actually enjoyed running the business again because it wasn't all on me because those earlier stages are more owner-centric. We had gotten enterprise-centric. It was fun again. And it was at that point that we sold our business. So I think that's one of the mental blocks is a lot of people, they're at 15 employees and they're saying, I can't possibly get up to 30. That's gonna be too complicated. But if you had a roadmap and you could know what you need to do, it really alleviates a lot of the fear and concern that a CEO has.
0: What I've seen when uh, leaders are at that point very often is they're the VP of everything. And they can't quite let go of anything because no one does it quite as well as me. And that type of leader can be very diminishing because at best, they're getting 50% out of their people because they're saying, You know, there's no point Matt's going to do this anyway, so why bother? Or there's this more passive-aggressive type of approach, which is, well, no one's as bright as me. I can't depend on anyone. And then there's the poor me uh, scenario that follows from that, which is I'm doing my best, where the hell are they? Uh, why, Mm -hmm. Why aren't they putting in as much? But what I've seen is that it requires a very big shift in thinking away from being a stage one and two business to transition into phase three and four. Because now you have to give trust. You have to let go. Your role shifts from being a producer and an operator to being a a leader and a manager and a mentor and a coach, which in theory you should have been doing in the first place, but you were too busy to do it. That leap of faith, what kind of conversations do you have with managers or le- uh, leaders at that point, because that must be a crisis of faith for many of them.
1: Yeah, the reality is, is we are unable to force a CEO to make that transition, right? So that that has to be a voluntary thing. But we can give guidance, and so that guidance comes in. I'll give you an example. We have one part of our rule set that's called three faces of a leader. So there are three faces that a leader can wear. The visionary, the manager, and the specialist. So, visionary really working on the business, setting a clear picture for where the company is going. Manager is overseeing and managing people and process, but not doing the work. And then, specialist is where you're really chipping in and helping do the work. That would include selling, but it could be operational or product development. Any of that would be more like the specialist role. And so, what we show the leader is that in stage one, there are different proportions of time that should be spent on those three faces than in stage two, than at stage three. So part of it is just that guide of saying, hey, you're going from a 40%, 50% as a specialist in stage one to in stage three, you're only a 20% or spent specialist and a 60% manager. And in stage one and two, you're doing hardly any manager because you don't have that many people to manage. And now in stage three, you need to be really focused on being that manager and, you know, some at that visionary. So the point is that just having these guardrails, really, these best practices is one way to get the owner to see, okay, best practices says here, if I align with that, my organization is going to be healthier. They still have to, to, to a bit of a leap of faith to say, okay, I'm going to try that. But once they start to see the methodology work, it's very freeing because they don't have to figure out everything by trial and error, right? And that's where we spend a lot of time. That's why we get stuck as business owners because we're out of options. We've tried everything in our playbook. and if we just had another play to try, one that's based on 1,300 other businesses, that some that succeeded, some that failed, and learning from both, maybe I could just follow that. And if I follow that, things will change. And that's what we see happens. That's what I've personally seen in my past business. So Three Faces of a Leader is the kind of resource, this concept, and this guidance That really helps leaders say, oh, I've got to transition. I can't stay 40% specialist. I've got to bring that down to 20. So how do I do that? That means I can't be doing as much of the work. Oh, I have to be 60% manager? Oh, that means I got to be mentoring and overseeing the people instead of doing the work. Oh, but that means I've got to trust them. I've got to build them up so that I can trust them. And often a big part that's missing is structure. One of the 11 elements that are necessary for an exceptional business is strong organizational structure. And so without organizational structure, it is very hard to go to stage three. It's almost impossible because of that. So when you add organizational structure, and there's a specific definition behind that, but when you add that where people are clear on their roles and responsibilities, those people can actually do the work. Most of the time, Um, and Dr. Deming, uh, you know, one of the, the quality gurus of the 50s and 60s, he said that 85% of all errors are due to process, not people. 85% process, 15% people. So when people aren't stepping up and being able to do the job well and consistently, it's typically process and structure is a kind of process. It's a, it's a mechanism for people to know what they need to do.
0: Okay, all of that's music to my ears. Can, can we just uh, double back for a second? You said that there was a distinction between core values and brand values. Can you explain what you mean?
1: Yeah, so how we define, um, you know, values are important. We all know that values are important. We have them in our personal lives. They really shape us as individuals. They shape our families. They shape our communities. They shape our nations, right? Businesses are these human organizations these ecosystems that are pulling together people from a variety of backgrounds, educational backgrounds, social understandings and backgrounds and so values really the reason you need them is to unify the team but what often happens with an organization is they come up with one set of values but there are really two audiences that values deal with one is outside the organization and the other is inside the organization. So what we say is brand values are your promise to the market, okay? So brand values say, hey, market, this is who we are. You can trust in us delivering on these values on a consistent way. And and if we do, then that becomes a strong brand. Core values are your promise to the team. This is the promise within the four walls of the business of how are we going to treat each other? what's going to be important to us how do we communicate to one another those kinds of things really oversee and help set the expectations for the internal environment and what often happens is a business will commingle those two sets of values and what comes out of that is, is somewhat somewhat confusing because some of it isn't a promise to the team it's really only external but it's part of these core values and there's great uh, clarity that comes out of this when you when you simply split those two apart, you only need two, three, four values in each of these buckets. But when you do it, the the brand values now drive uh, your communication to the market. Your business development becomes much clearer because you can say, here's who we are. Here's who, what we need to communicate. But then internally, you have these core values that say, how are we going to interact with each other? So that's the distinction. One is the promise to the market. One is the promise to the team. And by really bifurcating those, you really get a a much clearer picture of these unifying forces for the organization.
0: Very interesting. Talk talk me through the seven stages of the business so I've got a clearer understanding of that.
1: So stage one, each of these stages is defined by the number of full-time equivalents, We just use the word employees to keep it simpler. But technically, we're looking for the number of full-time equivalents within an organization. And a full-time equivalent is basically the number of bodies working 40 hours a week, essentially. So if you have two part-timers that are working 20 hours a week, we would consider that one employee for this methodology. So that's the first thing. So stage one. Stage one is from one employee to 10 employees. And we refer to that as the startup stage. This the stage is really known for chaos. That's kind of a defining feature. The business is still trying to figure out what they're doing. There's not a lot of process and that's okay. So that's stage one. Stage two is from 11 employees to 19, 11 to 19. And that is called the ramp up stage. Complexity is growing. You need a little bit more process but you still have to keep your eyes on profit to keep the business growing. Those two stages are what we call the owner-centric stage. Once you get out of that, you hit stage three, 20 to 34. 20 to 34 employees, stage three, and that's called delegation. For the first time, the organization is too complicated for it to be owner-centric. It's now transitioned to be enterprise-centric. And within that, the owner has to start to delegate. This is the first time there are probably formal managers and the owner spending more time managing work than doing the work. It's a big transition, especially for craftsmen, craftswomen who are, you know, really good at their craft, whatever that is, for them to move to stage three is a big transition because they are starting to let up on their ability to do the work. A lot of artisans don't want to do that, and so they just stay at one of those earlier stages. Stage four picks up at 35 employees and goes to 57. And we call that the professional stage. Professional stage because you're now either growing or hiring professional managers that are overseeing strong departments. So you're starting to build out your department structures in stage four. Very key stage. In this particular stage, as you build out these departments, you're also focusing on process. Process becomes really a key focus in stage four. Stage five is then 58 employees to 95 employees. This is the integration stage. And that's where these siloed departments from stage four now need a, to operate more in an integrated fashion. And you're starting to transition or identify some of these key managers that are good performers and starting to see them and growing them into a leadership team. So stage four and five, it's really management team focus. But at the end of stage five, you're starting to look forward into and creating a leadership team. Stage six goes from 96 employees to 160. And it's called the strategic stage. So now it's strategic because you have to be more strategic. You have to spend more time on strategy. And this is now where the leadership team, which is the CEO and additional people that make up the leadership team, is now really starting to run the business day to day. The CEO is is very little. They're only 5% of their time as a specialist now. So they're very little doing the work. They're primarily overseeing and creating the vision for the organization. It's really in this transition between stage five and six that many founders kind of run out of of runway. They, They just don't have the ability to go all the way from a specialist at stage one, all the way to a visionary. And a lot of times we see the CEO, the owner of the business, bringing in uh, a professional CEO around this time to really help the business going forward. Finally, we get to stage seven, 161 employees to 350 employees. And stage seven is the visionary stage. This is where the CEO is now really focused on culture, on the vision for the organization, and the leadership team really should be executing and running all day-to-day operations for the organization. And the CEO is now looking to say, who's who's going to be my successor, mentoring that person in anticipation for the CEO, likely to to go off and do something else at some point. That's kind of the idea.
0: OK. Do you mind if I challenge you on a couple of things? Absolutely. Okay. No,
1: no, I don't mind. <laughs>
0: I'm just curious, uh, you said in phases four and five, this is where you really need to start creating alignment and breaking down the silos. It strikes me that trying to do it then is significantly harder than if you started out making that the case. And in my experience, if you build everything with the customer at the heart and every department understands that the customer's success is paramount and you develop everything out from the customer, then you create that alignment very early on in the organization. And if the question going through everybody's mind is, is it good for the customer? Is it good for us? Does it get through our values filter? Then you bypass a lot of that restructuring later. Am I missing something here?
1: Yeah, it's probably just how I've I've uh, communicated with you because we're not we're not uh, in disagreement. Brand values and core values are need to be in place by stage. I want to say stage two. Yeah, they become a high priority in stage two. So your brand values are what unifies you on what you're going to promise to the customer. And that is a foundational alignment component. So that's there in stage two. What I'm saying in stage four is for the first time, you're setting up formal departments. What you want those managers to do in stage four is really focus on creating strong departments. You need to integrate them in stage five. But in stage four, it's more important to allow those departments to, to kind of have some time to really get their core work done. Yes, I mean, all these departments have to interact across each other and they're all motivated and unified by your brand values, your promise to the, to the market. So yeah, you're still all of them contributing to making sure the customer experience is good. But in stage four, you're really trying to, you're you're allowing those department managers to kind of get strong departments in place without having to worry about integration yet. Now, in some organizations, the integration happens earlier. We're just saying in stage five, you got to knock that out. If you don't have integration before going to stage five, by stage five, you got to get these siloed departments that are still working on this unified brand value. View of the marketplace, you got to get them working more together. There's cross departmental planning, there's budgeting, prioritization. You know, the organizations just get more complex. And so there's more mechanical, operational, even strategic and tactical things that you got to work out between the departments. But if you think back in stage two, for example, you're really kind of working kind of as a big blob, maybe have some teams. And maybe in stage three, you're starting to get a little bit more of teams formalized, maybe a department, you might have an operations department, but that structure just isn't quite needed yet because you don't have enough employees. But by stage four, you need those formal departments. Stage five is when you integrate those departments. So hopefully I've explained that a little bit better. I don't think we're in disagreement.
0: Okay, and what part does technology play in all of this? In our perspective, technology is
1: really an extension of process. And so systems are things that automate process. So obviously, in our research, we were looking at businesses with high degrees of technology and others with low degrees of technology. So technology plays a part, but that's more in your business model. And in, in process, your master processes, how you're going to actually implement your master processes and where technology fits into that. So that's really where we see. So, kind of strategic, your business model, how does strategy, uh, how does technology play into that? And then, and how do you actually execute the work, including things like business development? Do you have a CRM? You know, those kinds of things, those are all master processes, but it's really where for us technology becomes, comes to the forefront is. How are you going to design your master processes? Because how you design and execute your master processes has a large impact on your, really on your strategic advantage, your competitive advantage, I should say, your competitive advantage in the marketplace. So that's where we see technology.
0: Okay. So Matt, tell me this, when companies go out and bring in investment, can you give me some stories or talk about your experience of how that affected the culture and whether or not that has an impact on how well uh, a business performs at each of the different seven phases.
1: Yeah. um, And transparency, my data set for that is not as big as I'd like it to be. But the anecdotes I've seen is where you have investors coming in, And putting money in the business, that the key thing there is these brand values and core values. That if the investors are not bought into that, what you're actually doing is you're adding a new layer of of value that's being imposed on the organization from the outside. And what happens is that ownership, or I should say leadership, says here's our promise to the market, here's our promise to the team. And there is a a layer that says this value or these values supersede those. And so what starts to happen is you say you believe these down here, but the actions of the organization start to align with these values up here. And what you have is a denigration of what was a unifying principle for the organization. Those start to falter. And one of the things we teach in, in values, it's very hard to get your values in place and everybody bought into them. It's very easy to lose those values. You can do it almost overnight if you're not protecting them, if you're not defending them. So that's where I see is the biggest risk of that outside money is that there's there's different goals and uh, definitions of success That drive values, and those values are inconsistent with what the organization says its values are, and it's in that conflict that you see a lot of companies at that point fall apart because instead of being unified like they were, they are all fighting for the same fight. All of a sudden, somebody says, no, rules change. We're not doing that. Where there can be great power, though, with that outside investment if, if those inside outside investors buy into these and they're saying, yes, I want to feel more of that. If they see that that's important and they're actually supporting those two, two sets of values, then you can see really, uh, you know, rocket fuel come behind the business because they have the capital to grow and they aren't changing who the company
0: is. So this again confirms my suspicions, the values and the commercial objectives of the money behind the business will filter uh, through it unless the original owners are very clear and very selective about the type of money they bring in and make sure that those values remain intact. I see so many companies that have grown because they're fantastic with their customers. They really look after their people. They play their part in their community. Then they bring outside money in, and they now pay lip service to customer centricity and buyer safety, and uh, aiming to be a destination employer where people want to come to work. And at the end of the quarter. They do anything and everything and even stretch the boundaries of what might be ethical or moral in order to hit that number because the investors are interested in their valuation rather than in making the business successful. I often see that disconnect and the failure rate of companies that have been invested in through external sources of capital is depressingly high.
1: Yeah. And you have to understand that these two entities the original company and the investors are coming to the game with two different perspectives right so the initial the owners the founders you know they're in love with their company the vision for that company what they're trying to achieve in the marketplace with that company and in how they impact the people that are within that organization, that's where their passion comes from. The investors haven't put in that skin into the game; they don't have that kind of skin. Their skin is simply the capital, which is important, but it's a different flavor, right? I mean, it's it's kind of like giving to a charity or volunteering your time for a charity. Those are kind of two different levels of skin in the game, and so. Um, it would only be natural for them to have different perspectives. And they can be made aligned as long as there's a lot of clarity and communication on the front end. But because they're really coming in, I think the default is that there is a disconnect. It, you have to work really hard to get the connection. And if you're not doing that, the default, the status quo on that is going to be disconnect. And that disconnect will over time have an impact that's why i think in your experience you're saying the vast majority of them they're going great it's a great place to work you know all these great things money comes in now it's different and it's not better it's worse and so that's that would be my perspective is that it's more easy for it to come out bad it's a lot harder takes more effort to come out good it can come out good but it's kind of i think a lot of it is just uh be honest, ignorance on on the part of the people taking the money. They really want to grow the business. The money looks attractive, and they haven't done it very many times. Most of the people giving the money have done it more times. And so it's very hard on the founders to find the right source of capital that isn't going to, over time, really change the nature of their business. It's it's very difficult.
0: Drew D'Agostino, who's one of the co-founders of Crystal Knows, described it as good money, bad money, and dumb money. And very mm. often, okay. the bad money is dressed up as good money, so you're better off with dumb money. He'll right. Let you get on with it. And yeah,
1: you've got, to find investors,
0: it. you've got to find investors who want the business to succeed first, um, right. and they recognize that doing things the right way will give them their return. But you need to find patient capital. Because if you're going to really grow a business on solid foundations, that takes work, and you can't think short-term.
1: I'm in agreement with that, with that uh, assessment.
0: Okay. As the manager transitions, uh, sorry, as the founder transitions into 60% manager, very often these people are technicians. They're good technically at what they do, and they've been on the tools, they've been you know, at the goal face but they're often ill equipped to move wholesale into management so if we look at the kind of systems that will help a manager become more effective as a coach as a trainer as a mentor what are the kind of things you're advising your clients around that
1: well i think there's there's two layers of that i think your observation that a lot of founders they're the technician, they're the specialist, the artisan, and the skill sets needed to be a manager, a mentor, a coach are quite different. And that doesn't mean they can't exist in the same person, but oftentimes it's not natural. But I would say that that same dynamic of kind of, I'm getting to a new level that requires new skill sets, new principles to drive me, new ideas, also works in the same manner with anybody growing up in an organization that's moving from a doer to a supervisor to a manager. So this is just the owner's experience with that, but he or she's got people underneath of them that stage four and five are going to be going through that same thing. So what we see is just a lack of understanding about management principles of management skills and management tools. And so we saw that as such a great and unique need that we've we've generated and developed a, a specific program for that. So both managers growing up into management for the first time and the owner, the CEO, the leader growing up into their first really management role, both need to understand that there's four areas of management that they have to be skilled in. And so We call it the management wheel. There's four quadrants, and those four quadrants are you have to be able to manage the self, yourself, the staff, your team, the work, doing the work, right? And the workplace, uh, where people come together and where and how people come together to do work. So those self-staff, work, and workplace are the four quadrants of the management wheel. And so we spend a year through our management team training program to not only provide these improved skills to the owner, but to the managers or other leaders within the organization. And what comes out is a cohesive management team that, very importantly, has a common set of language surrounding management. A lot of the reason Management teams, not just the leader, but the whole management team is ineffective or is not as effective as it could be, is because they lack a common set of language, right? Now, if you think about the operations of a business, operations almost always has to have some common language. Whatever the work is that's being done, they come up with their own language. You know, in restaurants, take these guests and sit them at table 22 on a four top. At least that's the U.S. language. And the restaurant, the people working in the restaurant know exactly that, that what table is 22 and what a four top is, right? Because they've created this language to help them be effective in operations. Most businesses have that language for operations, but they lack that for management. They don't have a common set of language. So they, they struggle just even to communicate about conflict or skills that are needed, uh, organizing the work, Time management, all these things are kind of left to the individual manager to try to figure out. And then they don't really have a, a common language to use to communicate with their peers in the organization.
0: So, to summarize my understanding of what we talked about, the business will go through different phases. And at each phase, the leader and eventually the management layer need to adapt their. Balance of work and focus in order to enable that phase to flourish. At each phase, it's also important to have clarity about what's coming next and have a clear plan and a roadmap on where they're headed so that they can start planning ahead, recruiting ahead, building the bench, making sure they've identified the next generation of leaders. And next generation of managers and building succession plans. And in the process of doing that, developing common language with a clear idea of the structure, the systems, the people that they're going to need, and making sure that all of those are aligned towards common purpose and are clear of their function at the phase that they are in, and to ensure that. All the critical areas, new business development, understanding the financial position, making sure that they are collecting, cash flow is strong, that operations is working in lockstep to support sales, but also to ensure that it's feeding back into sales so that they know what the customers are looking for in terms of product development and creating that culture that uh, glues them all together, built upon strong values uh, around the internal values and the values that they present to the outside world and especially to customers, and to have a leader who's able to subsume their ego and let go in order to allow others to flourish and to get the best out of them. And if you do all of this, then growing a business is almost a scientific certainty. If you don't, and you kind of wing it, then chances are bits of the business will get ahead of the other parts, and then you'll start to see cracks. And that's where you keep going backwards and forwards and yo-yoing between stages. Is that a fair summary?
1: Yeah, and... What you've encapsulated there sounds like a lot, and it is, but that's why having a roadmap is so important, because when you can go down literally down a sheet and kind of check mark what you've gotten done, what you're not what you're not done with yet, it makes a lot easier than trying to say, "Oh, I've got to do all this." And it's important to understand that you're chipping away at this at each stage. You don't need all the structure of a stage seven business. When you're at stage one, you simply don't need it. You don't have that level of complexity. But if you know that stage one, going to stage two, you need some incremental additions, you can be working on those. And when you're getting ready to stage three, you can look ahead and say, like you said, you can be proactive and say, oh, I've got to have a couple managers. I'm going to be there in a year. I can't grow a manager in two weeks. I need to start that now so I can mentoring and growing those people or hiring a new person that I know I'm going to need in stage four and they need to be professional. So I need to invest in training my managers that grew up through the ranks. It gives you this, this roadmap again, that says it's not this big, huge map of the United States or of Europe that says, here's all the roads. Good luck. It's no, get from one this destination to this de- destination, and here's what you need to be a, attentive to. Now you're here. Let's work on getting to the next one, and so it's more bite-sized because of that. But that's, you can be proactive. So,
0: so everything that's placed in a place for everything, in effect, perfect. Okay, so sadly we've come to the top of the hour, Matt. So. Tell me this: You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and advise the idiot map, age twenty-three, who knew everything and was uh, invincible and immortal. What bit of advice would you give him that he would have probably have ignored?
1: <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that uh, I've focused on business, but let me just be a little bit more personal on on the answer to this one. You know, the, the reality is I've been very blessed in my life. I mean i've I've had success in business. But I've also have four healthy, high-functioning children. I've got six grandbabies, all of which are healthy and beautiful. And I've got a wife that still loves me after being together for almost forty years, between dating and uh, being married. I don't know what else I could ask for. So, for me to go back, I would I'd be concerned more that I'd screw that twenty-three-year-old up and not end up here. But I would say if there was something, is don't be afraid to take risk. Mm -hmm. It took me a while to get there. In part, I was busy with with four small children. But um, the reality is, is every time I've taken risk, reasonable risk, not crazy risk, it's rare that I haven't at least survived and usually have succeeded. And so I think that's one thing in our culture today, we're very much Nothing bad can happen. If something bad happens, that's, you know, uh, you should be able to avoid that, eliminate all risk. But the reality is, is we need to encourage risk taking. That's what entrepreneurship is about. And so I I wish I was able to take risk earlier and, and didn't let fear keep me from doing that.
0: There's a misunderstanding about risk and sacrifice, sacrificing is going from higher to lower value. And that's what people tend to uh, actually fear. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility you may lose some or all of what you've got. And understanding how to maximize your risk is a really important discipline. And uh, understanding how to measure risk so that you can identify what the worst case scenario is. Because if you can't live with the worst case scenario, absolutely don't take the risk. If you can, then do it. They're almost never fatal. If you're uh, on the front line in Afghanistan, it's that's life or death. But deciding whether or not to buy one CRM system over another, probably not going to be that fatal uh, unless you implement it poorly, because they're all pretty much the same. So I think there's a really important lesson here, which is uh, be clear about the definition of risk and do not confuse it with sacrificing.
1: Yeah. and. And unfortunately, you know, we, we actually have parts of our culture that that actually encourage sacrifice and discourage risk taking, which is really yeah. odd. But uh, you know, that there's some great good from sacrifice when risk is really how as a society we get better, we achieve more, is when we take those risks, like you said, where you you take on uncertainty with the goal of having more at the end. And so I'm I'm in full agreement that we should be willing to take more risk.
0: Excellent. What would you advise people to watch, read, listen to that you think they would really benefit from? There's been several resources.
1: I'll I'll focus more on kind of the business-oriented side of things, but um, a couple books that have impacted me. Navigating the Growth Curve is the original book that talked about this idea of stages of growth. That's the inventor of the methodology. So Navigating the Growth Curve by James Fisher. F-I-S-C-H. E-R, correct. The second book is, um, this is again, more personal, but finance-oriented, Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. And he talks about the cash flow quadrants. I think there's a separate book on that. That one really helped me to understand about Building wealth and what it really means to own a business. That's been very insightful for me. Another author, his name is Dr. Dennis Deaton, D E A T O N, and he has a, an audio book on visioneering. So, vision earing, as it sounds, it's really about mind management. And uh, my I'm an analytical mind. My analytical mind tends to see a lot of risk, kind of be naturally pessimistic. And visioneering really has helped me to see how controlling my my mind, not in a weird woo-woo way, but just exercising the capabilities of my mind can help me achieve more by picturing what I want and releasing the the natural abilities of my conscious and subconscious mind. So that's been a, a really important concept for me so those are at least three books that are uh, materials that I think are valuable
0: excellent Matt thank you so much this has been very insightful well I appreciate uh, you reaching across
1: the the pond and uh, and speaking with me and we'd love to uh, impact businesses in the UK and Europe we're doing that already but I uh, would like like love to accelerate that in the future
0: how can people get hold of you
1: simplest is the rewildgroup.com. So rewildgroup.com. We have a lot of free resources. We have Navigating the Growth Curve book on there, uh, but a uh, lot of great resources, including assessments, some online material uh, series. So a uh, really rich website for, and I'd encourage you to download some of the material, take some of the assessments. I think you'll get a lot of insight into your business as a business leader.
0: Matthew Pohl, thank you. Okay, thanks, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think of somebody who would really benefit because maybe they're struggling to transition from one phase of growth to the other, they've stagnated or stalled, then please share this episode with them. In the meantime, If you want to get a hold of me, my email is marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.